Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. How is voting suppressed in the U.S. right now, and what can we do to change that? These are the main questions for our guest on Future Hindsight today, Max Feldman of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law, where he focuses on voting rights and elections. The center is a nonpartisan law and policy institute that works to reform, revitalize, and defend our country's systems of democracy and justice. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Can you give us an overview on voting suppression? Where and how is voting suppressed? Sure. So voting suppression takes a variety of forms. One that I focus on at the Brennan Center is what we call vote denial, like strict voter ID laws, cutbacks to early voting, requirements that people present documentary proof of citizenship in order to register. At least 23 states since the end of 2010 have put in place new forms of voter suppressive laws that are scheduled to be in place for this year's election. Why do you think they started after 2010? Well, there was a wave election after 2010 that I think really encouraged people who are interested in these sorts of laws and give them incentives to sort of push ahead with them. This trend that started in 2011 was exacerbated in 2013 when the Supreme Court issued a decision in a case called Shelby County versus Holder, which struck down a critical part of the Voting Rights Act. So the Voting Rights Act has been one of the most successful pieces of civil rights legislation in our country's history. It's been extremely effective at ensuring that people have the right to vote. A key part of the Voting Rights Act was Section 5, which required certain states with a history of discrimination to pre-clear changes to their election laws with the federal government before putting them in place. The states that were required to go through this preclearance process were determined by a formula in Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act. In 2013, the Supreme Court basically took the teeth out of the Voting Rights Act by striking down Section 4. And as a result, it essentially eviscerated the preclearance process. Right. So basically, because Section 4 was struck out, it gave room for states to enact stricter voting laws. That's right. That's a great way of putting it. It gave room for states to enact stricter voting laws without oversight from the federal government. And it also was a signal, I think, to people or legislators that were interested in passing these suppressive laws that the court system might not be as hard on them as we would like, that they had something of a green light to go ahead and pass worse laws. This key preclearance provision has really lost its bite. What do you think is the most effective law that basically disenfranchises people? Laws that we are very concerned about, I would say, are strict voter ID laws like in Texas, which require people to present one of a short list of government-issued photo ID in order to vote and don't provide a reasonable alternative for people who can't get or don't have that ID. Unsurprisingly, these types of laws fall hardest on people who are lower income and communities of color. The way in which these laws are justified and passed goes hand in hand with a myth that is propagated by some that there's widespread in-person voter fraud in the United States and that these voter ID laws are needed to prevent that sort of fraud. And the reality is the Brennan Center studied this issue extensively, as have many others. And 
in-person voter fraud is actually very rare. These laws are directed at a problem that doesn't really exist. And even though many of us do have ID or have easy access to ID, the costs can be very high for people that don't have ID. And so they really do end up disenfranchising a lot of people. Um, other laws that are disenfranchising and that we're focused on are things like early voting cutbacks. Early voting is a popular and convenient way to vote. Things like documentary proof of citizenship, where states require people to prove with a document that they are a citizen of the country. And if you think about it, if you're someone who's being registered by a third party like the League of Women Voters or something, you're not necessarily carrying around your birth certificate in a public place. In the upcoming midterm election, what are the biggest risks in terms of voter disenfranchisement? The laws that I've been talking about are major risks, especially in states where the laws are new and where they're holding close elections. There are also some other risks that I think are notable. One is voter purges. We recently put out a report at the Brennan Center that showed that voter purges are on the rise. These are laws or practices that remove people from the voter rolls. Voter purging or list maintenance is what we call it is important to keep the voter rolls clean and to make sure that people who should be on the rolls are on there and people who shouldn't be aren't. But when it's done improperly, recklessly, when laws are passed that don't require purging to be done carefully, too often people who are entitled to vote are kicked off the rolls and lose the chance to vote. We see a major rise in voter purges in recent years, especially in states that were previously subject to preclearance. The second major risk are sort of election day ballot security operations. Uh, another way of putting it would be voter intimidation or deception tactics, things that intimidate people at the polls to prevent them from voting or spread false information about the time, or place, or manner that elections are conducted. This year, we have particular reason to be concerned because there was previously a consent decree issued by a court against the Republican National Committee based on its voter intimidation and deception tactics in the early 1980s. The RNC was subject to a similar preclearance process for any of these sorts of quote-unquote ballot security operations that it wanted to run during an election. But the consent decree was finally lifted earlier this year, and so we'll see whether that has any serious effects at the polls in November. Yeah, we'll see. How does litigation work? So just at a general level, the way a lot of the lawsuits that the Brennan Center brings work are a state will pass a law that we believe is illegal and has disenfranchising effects. We will then often represent individual voters as well as organizations like the League of Women Voters or the NAACP that have members that are affected by these disenfranchising laws. We'll then bring a lawsuit often with partners, other organizations or law firms challenging the law and pointing out why we think it's unlawful. For example, in this Texas case that I've been working on, we challenged Texas's voter ID law under the U.S. Constitution, claiming that it violated the Equal Protection Clause and that it also constituted an undue burden on people's rights to vote under the U.S. Constitution. We also challenged the law under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that's still available to individuals to challenge these discriminatory laws. To give another example, we represent the League of Women Voters and the NAACP of Indiana in a suit challenging Indiana's recent voter purge law. 
we brought suit claiming that the law violated a federal statute that governs voter purges. We sought a preliminary injunction from the court to temporarily block the law in the advance of this year's election before there was a full trial on the merits of the case. And the court basically said to Indiana, you can't enforce this voter purge law this year until we've had a chance to fully evaluate the law. A somewhat different outcome we got was in Texas. The district court struck the law down. It went back and forth, up and down on appeal. And while the litigation was ongoing, Texas passed a new law trying to address some of the issues that we had raised in our initial lawsuit. The litigation of these issues can often be complicated and very resource intensive and time consuming. So it's much better to be able to block the laws on the front end, whether it's through the preclearance process or through legislative advocacy and people getting out there and telling their legislators that they don't want these types of laws. But litigation is often the last recourse that's absolutely necessary. What can everyday people do in order to be on the front end the way you say? These laws, in my personal view, can often breed cynicism about the system and can lead people to think, my vote doesn't matter or my vote won't be counted. Succumbing to that kind of cynicism is exactly what the sponsors of these laws want. And so as a baseline, just making sure you're active, you're registered to vote, your family and friends are registered, and just getting out there and making your voice heard is the number one thing you can do. Being informed about these laws and making sure that you understand the issues can be critically important too. These laws have a very surface appeal that people get right away. They think, oh, well, an ID makes sense. It's no big deal. If you dig a little bit deeper, you can see that often these laws have a discriminatory purpose and they certainly have a discriminatory effect to disenfranchise people unnecessarily. Can you give a concrete example of how voter ID laws are onerous for minority communities? So to go back to Texas again, the voter ID law was passed against a backdrop of an extraordinary increase in the minority population. There was a major increase after the last census in the African-American and Latino population. And the district court in our case, although it wasn't upheld on appeal, twice found that the Texas legislators who passed this law did so with the purpose of disenfranchising or discriminating against people of color. The most sort of concrete way to think about it is that there are disparate rates of possession of the required IDs. So white voters are disproportionately more likely to have the IDs that are required as compared to Latino and African-American voters. And the way that that plays out is that if you don't have the ID, you can't vote. Although Texas has amended its law to provide an alternative for people who don't have the ID. For people who are low income, obtaining ID can be extremely burdensome. It really depends on the rules of each state. But if you were an elderly person and you're poor, you may not have your birth certificate. And obtaining your birth certificate from 80 years ago can be difficult, expensive, or impossible. And if you can't get it, you can't get the ID. Things like that really have a disproportionate impact on certain communities. And that's often the intent with these laws. When I read your report, one of the things that really stood out to me is exactly this, that a lot of elderly people are disenfranchised, which is such a surprise to them, of course, because they show up and they've been voting their entire lives. And older people vote, by and large, right, in higher numbers than young people, and they show up and they can't vote. Yeah. It must be totally discombobulating for them and 
really a violation of sorts that their right was taken away without their knowledge. I think that's absolutely right. We collected some testimonials in connection with our lawsuit from older voters. I think it's personally hurtful. People who are older and make the effort to vote, to be informed about the issues, and then find themselves at the polling place disenfranchised, it's really heartbreaking in a lot of ways. It is heartbreaking. One of the things that really has come to mind throughout doing this season, which is all about voting and elections, is that voting is actually powerful and effective, or otherwise nobody would try to suppress it. Right. right? I think people don't think about it that way. Yeah. What would you say is the power of voting? Voting has a couple of different powers to me. One is holding our leaders accountable. You know, we live in a democracy. The way that we are able to hold our leaders accountable is by voting. I think that's a critically important piece. We also have an opportunity to say where we want the country to go in a forward-looking way with the power of our vote. Those are two big things. I also think that voting has a different aspect. The power dynamics aside, I think it's just an expression of our right as a citizen of this country and, and what we believe this country can and should be. Let's talk about the good news. What are the things that are happening or have been happening, let's say, in the last 10 years that have improved our right to vote? There are a couple of policies in particular that we're focused on right now at the Brennan Center. One is called automatic voter registration. Usually when you go to the DMV, for example, and you try to get your driver's license, you are asked, do you want to register to vote? And if you say yes, you fill out a form, you're registered to vote. That form is somehow transferred over to the elections administrator for the state, and then the election administrator registers you to vote. There are two issues with this system that automatic voter registration improves on. The first is that automatic voter registration shifts us from an opt-in system where you're asked if you want to vote and you have to say yes to an opt-out system where you're registered to vote unless you decline. So everyone who goes to the DMV will be registered to vote unless they check a box that says, no, I don't want to be registered, assuming, of course, that they're eligible to vote. The second thing that automatic voter registration accomplishes is electronic transfer of records from the DMV or other agencies that states choose to participate in the program to the state elections administrator. So for a long time, the way that these things were done is by pen and paper. You'll write down the information the form is put in a box and it's physically transported from one office to another. And you run into basic problems like handwriting, forms getting lost, things like that, that really lead to disenfranchisement. To use the technology that we take for granted today is kind of a no-brainer. We've been seeing a major increase in the adoption of this policy, AVR, just this year, four states have adopted it, and by our count, seven states and the District of Columbia will have it in place in advance of this year's election. More will come online in the years following. Another reform that we're very focused on is restoring the right to vote to people who have lost that right because of a felony conviction in their past. And that's a big issue this year, in particular because of a referendum in Florida that I think some of your listeners will be familiar with from previous episodes, about 1.4 million people in Florida are disenfranchised due to a felony conviction in their past. That's a massive number. And Florida's policy is very strict. No matter what you did, no matter how far it was in your past, you are disenfranchised for life. There's a measure on the ballot that Floridians will have the opportunity to weigh in on this November to change that policy. 
and automatically restore voting rights to people once they complete the terms of their sentence. We're seeing momentum behind that type of measure here in New York. Governor Cuomo signed an executive order back in April restoring voting rights to people on parole, and that's affected almost 30,000 people. In Louisiana, the governor signed into effect a law improving their system, which could have the effect of restoring the rights of about 2,500 people when it's implemented next year. So those are two major reforms that we're really excited about and that we think have some momentum behind them. I have a question about automatic voter registration. In your report, you say that there's bipartisan support for this. How is that really possible if there's bipartisan support for automatic voter registration on one hand, but on the other hand, one part of the legislature is trying to disenfranchise voters at the same time? (laughs) (laughs) You know, can you explain that a little bit? We see bipartisan support more broadly for election modernization provisions like online voter registration, which 10 years ago was sort of a unusual feature of state registration systems. And AVR is in part a modernization of the election system with the electronic transfer portion of it. More broadly, some states are more focused on restrictive suppressive laws, while other states are more focused on expansive pro-voter laws. And often those states are different states, even if one party is advancing suppressive laws in some states, the same party may join in to promote expansive laws in other states. For example, West Virginia passed a automatic voter registration law with bipartisan support. At the same time, they passed a voter ID law that we would generally think of as more on the restrictive side. So it's possible to hold both of these ideas in one legislature. But generally, I think there's some distinction between the states that are sort of more interested in suppressive laws and the states that are more interested in expansive laws. So in the states where they have AVR and maybe even Election Day registration, what is the evidence that it's working? So we do have some numbers out of the states that have already implemented it. Oregon was the first state to implement AVR. So we've seen solid evidence out of that state that the numbers are increasing. Some studies have reported that it's increased not only registration numbers, but turnout as well. California has also started putting out numbers that are very positive. This is one of those reforms that I think should clearly work in theory. And so it's exciting to see the numbers bear out in practice in the states that have implemented it. That's terrific. Do you think that the whole country or state by state might adopt this? I do think that there is a lot of momentum behind it. As you mentioned, it has bipartisan support in some states. And we're working state by state to try to get states to adopt it. I do think that there are some states that may be less interested at this time in adopting it. The more states that adopt it and see that it works, I think it will be more and more difficult for the states that don't have it to abstain. This is something that we saw with online voter registration, for example, where there were perhaps some early movers and then states that were less interested in going along, but eventually it became sort of par for the course. Are there other expansive laws or policies that are rolling out right now that we haven't discussed yet? A couple of other big ones would be expanding early voting is is something that's critically important. And you mentioned it, same-day registration is something that's proven to uh, improve registration numbers and is a critically important reform and one that we hope more states adopt. 
And then protecting voters at the polls, combating uh, deceptive information on election day, things like that. Why are you passionate about the work you do? I really do think it has the potential to make our country a better place. We see a lot of division in the country, a lot of policies that some of us may not agree with. Voting is something that I hope can bring us together in some way as a civic duty. And it can also sort of improve the responsiveness of our political leaders, making sure that our leaders exercise power in a way that's consistent with our values and our belief in civility and unity in this country. That is why I'm passionate about making sure that people who want to vote can vote and trying to encourage people to get out there and express themselves. On that note, what makes you hopeful for the future? I'm very hopeful about these new reforms like AVR and rights restoration. I'm also hopeful about some of the lawsuits that are being filed. We have a lot of great civil rights groups in this space who are very active and really trying to ensure that everyone who has the right to vote can exercise it. That sort of passion and interest in the voting process makes me hopeful. The flip side, I suppose, of all of the division that we've experienced over the past couple of years is a surge in civic interest and interest in the political process. And while I think that, unfortunately, that interest can be misdirected or can lead to anger and division, I, I hope that over time it can be sort of channeled into a broader energy and excitement about the political process and about our democracy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Everyone who has the right to vote should be able to exercise it. Election modernization initiatives like automatic voter registration are key in expanding voter participation. In addition, pro-voter laws such as expanding early voting, election day registration, and restoring the right to vote to felons who have completed the terms of their sentence are also gaining ground. At the same time, the art of disenfranchising eligible voters is going strong. The trend started in the wake of the 2010 census and was exacerbated when the Voting Rights Act was rendered toothless in 2013. The most common vote denial practices are strict voter ID laws, cutbacks to early voting, and documentary proof of citizenship. Let's stay optimistic and focus on the good news in voter expansion. Register to vote. Encourage all of your family and friends to register. And finally, be sure you yourself go to the polls on November 6th. Can Americans work together to solve the country's problems? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Dr. Robert P. Jones, the CEO of Public Religion Research Institute and a leading scholar and commentator, as well as the author of The End of White Christian America. PRRI is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that conducts high quality public opinion surveys and qualitative research in order for us to better understand debates on public policy issues and the role of religion and values in American public life. The voting population looks significantly different from the general populations. Essentially, at the high end of voting, you have older, white, non-Hispanic citizens that are of the most regular voters. That is the declining portion of the American population. Uh, one way to think about this is as the population is basically becoming less Christian and less white over time, and as that shift has been happening, we haven't quite seen it show up at 
the ballot box quite yet. And the ballot box today acts like a time machine that takes us back about 10 years, demographically speaking. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services.